Today on Hearing is Believing. And when we learn of the matchless power of God's amazing grace that is greater than all of our sin, when we experience His love, when we experience His forgiveness, when we realize that the same God who saved us is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, then we're going to be eager to join with God on mission. Connecting contemporary culture to the timeless truths of God's Word. This is Hearing is Believing. Think about our Christ and all that He's done. Jesus has brought an extravagant truth to the world. In our text this evening, if you want to go ahead and turn there, 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll look at verses 12 through 17 tonight. Our text this evening is, tells the truth that God has brought to the world in Christ. Look at verse 15 when you get there. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, from that verse, we have the idea of what we call the gospel. Now, you've probably heard that phrase. You've probably heard that word, the gospel. But what is the gospel? And if we ask, what is the gospel, then we should ask, why is the gospel important? And I just want to ask you, as many times as you've heard the phrase gospel, have you ever considered those questions? Or have you assumed the question? And let me say this, when it comes to the gospel, something that has eternal implications, something that has come near to us through the sending of the Son, something so extravagant as the gospel, what is assumed is often lost. And so I don't want us to lose the gospel. I want us to clearly define the gospel so that in our own hearts and minds, we can have a clear understanding of the gospel. And these are the questions that launched one of the most influential books in my life. And if you haven't read it, I encourage, I should have brought a copy to show you this evening, but it's a book by Jerry Bridges called The Gospel for Real Life. And in the preface, I'll say that again so that you can write it down if you desire, The Gospel for Real Life by Jerry Bridges. And in the preface, Bridges says this, Some years ago, I heard someone say that we should preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Though I had already been doing that to some degree, the statement brought clarity and focus to my own practice. And so Bridges says, I began using it in my ministry to others. Now, Bridges left this world in 2016. But think about that phrase, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preaching the gospel to ourselves every day has radical implications for not only how we understand the gospel, but also how we live. And often when we think of the gospel, we often think of the the moment of decision, the hour when we first believed. And when we do that, we neglect that Jesus is not simply the way to life, but Jesus himself is life. And so what does that mean? That means that he is not simply the way to life, but he is the way of life for all of those who by faith trust in him and believe. J.D. Greer, he put it this way, 
The gospel is not just the diving board off of which we jump into the pool of Christianity. The gospel is the pool itself. So back to Jerry Bridges. Bridges, he asked in his first chapter, Have you ever thought about the wonderful truth that Christ lived His perfect life in your place and on your behalf? Has it yet gripped you that when God looks at you today, He sees you clothed in the perfect sinless obedience of His Son? And that when He says, This is my Son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased, He includes you in that warm embrace. The extent to which we truly understand this is the extent to which we begin to enjoy those unsearchable riches that are found in Christ. So what is the gospel? (laughs) I love the way that Tim Keller from uh, out of, used to be in New York, but Tim Keller answered the question in this way. Listen to what Keller says. The gospel humbles and affirms us at the same time. Since in Christ, each of us is simultaneously just and a sinner still. And then listen to this phrase. And if you get this phrase, it'll change your life. Listen. At the same time, we are more flawed and sinful than we ever dared believe. Yet, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dare hope. At the same time, we are more flawed and sinful than we ever dared believe. Yet, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dare hope. This is the gospel. No wonder Bridges says that we need it for every day. We need it for every day. Back to Paul, back to our text. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. What's true of Paul is true of me. What's true of Paul is true of us. In the words of a popular song, I'm the one who held the nail. It was cold between my fingertips. I've hidden in the garden. I've denied you with my very lips. God, I fall down to my knees with a hammer in my hand. You look at me with your arms open and you say one word. Forgiven. Forgiven. And so we're continuing our series this evening, Safe to Shore, and we're exploring Paul's first letter to Timothy, and we're discovering 12 principles to keep your faith off the rocks, 12 principles to keep your faith off the rocks. And the reason that we use such a phrase is because we don't want happen to us uh, what happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander. And if you look at verse 18 or verse 20, they made shipwreck of their faith. And so what we're doing by looking at 1 Timothy is we're seeking principles to discover how we can arrive safe to shore. And so today is principle number three. And just like a puzzle piece that fits just perfectly, 
that one puzzle piece that you may have been looking for but finally found. This principle fits perfectly after the first two. Principle number one was true doctrine. Principle number two was the right practice. Or we can say principle number one, orthodoxy. Principle number two, orthopraxy, if any of you like technicalities. But principle number three is the gospel. And look at that order. The right teaching, the right way of living, and the centerpiece of it all stands the gospel. And so remember the context. Remember what we learned in 1 Timothy, and you were to go back and read it you would see that Paul opens the letter addressing false teachers as well as their teaching and their lifestyle and suggesting that their lifestyle, their teaching leads to a certain lifestyle. So the lifestyle that's really played out in verse 8 through 11, uh, those lifestyle choices are the result of false teaching. And so attached to the false teachers are With the false teachers, what Paul does is right after he talks about their false teaching, he takes a fresh opportunity for Timothy to articulate the gospel. And I don't think that that's accidental. Again, the text determines the message. The text laid out determines what God wants us to know because it's inspired, it's inerrant. And I don't think that that's accidental. That after he's dealing with the false teachers and true doctrine and their lifestyle, He then goes and articulates the gospel. And so here's what I mean. It's not accidental. At the core of all false teaching, listen, at the core of all false teaching is a wrong understanding of the gospel. And so getting the gospel right is of supreme importance. So we're coming up on October. Believe it or not, it's already October. October is already upon us. And the most famous day in October is what? Tell me. What's the most famous day in October? All right, October 31st. Some of you may say, well, my birthday is the most famous. I guess we don't have any October birthdays in the room tonight. That's all right. But what is October the 31st is also known as Reformation Day. That's exactly right. It's known as Reformation Day. And this October the 31st is going to launch, every one of you knew that, I could tell. Yeah, we all know October the 31st is Reformation Day. And this October the 31st marks the 503rd anniversary since an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther nailed a, a thesis or 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And that monk with those nails and those theses launched, was the spark that launched what we call the Protestant Reformation. And so think about that word, Protestant. You and I, as Baptists, we are Protestant. But what on earth are we protesting? Well, we're protesting still, 503 years later, we are protesting the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because we believe they missed the gospel. We believe they get it wrong. Let's read the Bible. Look at verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful. 
appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Thank you for the gospel. May the gospel be faithfully proclaimed from this preacher tonight, and may the Spirit apply the truths to the hearts of those listening. We pray these things in the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Son, to the glory of the Father. And everyone said, Amen. So what I want to do tonight, very briefly, is I want to encourage you to hold firm to the gospel. I want to encourage you to hold firm to the gospel. And so from this text, what I want to do is I want to highlight the gospel. And I'm going to highlight the gospel in four points. So number one, or four truths, number one. And number one is probably my favorite one to consider. Write this down bold and sure. God's desire is for you. God's desire is for you. Now, oftentimes we think about our desire for God. We talk about our personal decision to follow Jesus. But have you given much thought to the truth that God desires you? You say, can you explain that to me? Not fully. No way. You mean God desires me? Absolutely. All of me? Every bit of you. All of you. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 gives us a glimpse of God's side of the personal relationship. Look at where Paul begins. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ, uh, to, who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. His desire is for you. God's desire is for us. The Bible says that we love Him only because He first loved us. And His love for us meant that He created. His love for us goes all the way then. In creation, in that creation moment, what did God do? Have you ever considered creation? What did God do? Why did He create? He created. When He created, He made space, literally, for us to be able to know Him. For us to be able to commune with Him. For us to relate to Him. For us to walk in loving obedience with Him. You think about that picture, that beautiful picture of God in the, in the garden. Or outside the garden, if we're specific. When God created man, what did He do? 
He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And I love the picture there that the the text paints. The idea is of this transcendent God, this magnificent God who simply spoke and there was, bending down, forming man out of dust, and then almost like a kiss, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. And he created that man with the capacity. He created humanity with the capacity to relate to Him. He created space, not because He was lonely and needed something. No, He had perfect fellowship in and of Himself. This is why, going back to true doctrine, the Trinity is so important. Because if you don't get the Trinity, you don't get the reason for creation. God was Self, he was a perfectly fine as he was, a fellowship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he decided to share himself with us. They were in perfect love, perfect harmony. And he decided that he was going to share that life with us. And so he created. Our position, or our choice, of Him always follows His choice of us. Our choice of Him always follows His choice of us. Our position is always responding to Him. His position is always the initiating position. And what does that mean? If we say that God desires you, you know what that means? It means that God didn't make a mistake when He made you. God doesn't make a mistake. And he did not make a mistake when he made you. Now, all of us are not called like the Apostle Paul. I don't believe no one is or they ever will be again called like the Apostle Paul was. Paul's position was unique in history to fulfill everything that God had placed upon his life. But he was called by a God who never changes. And this same God that called Paul calls us. Even though He's not called us in the same way that He's called Paul, God has called us to something that only you and I can do. In this world, He has gifted you. He has put people in your circle of influence. He has made you fearfully and wonderfully. And the Bible says that you are, since it says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, the idea there, since He created you, since He called you specifically, there's something that God wants you to accomplish. And so you then, as a follower of Jesus Christ, have a call upon your life. And that call upon your life is to make Him known, is to not only know Him, but to make this Jesus known. And so you make Him known in your workplace, at home, at school, wherever you are, whatever you do, God has a job for you. You say, well, what is my job? My job and our job is to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? The word disciple simply means learner. So we are to learn Christ as well as to encourage others to learn Him. Understanding that evangelism is our responsibility. Conversion is is His responsibility. We just simply have to make known what has been made known to us. One of the greatest benefits of the vision of the Reformation ignited by Luther was the abolition of the laity. Luther in the Reformation got rid of the laity. 
So think about Roman Catholicism for just a minute. When I think about Roman Catholicism, I think about priest. But the vision of the Reformation is not to abolish the priesthood. The vision, listen, the vision of the Reformation was to abolish the laity. The gospel dissolves the dividing line between the priest and the laity. Because what does the gospel do? The gospel reminds us that we are all priests of God, and we don't stand in any need of any intermediary. God chose you. His desire is for you. He calls you personally. And so you don't need an intermediary. We call this notion the priesthood, listen, the priesthood of the believer. What does that mean? It means that each soul is responsible to fulfill the mission that God has given. You have talents. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit, sealed by His power until the day of redemption. And in that sealing, in that filling, God has given you gifts, given you talents, as well as given you opportunity. And it's up to you. I can't make you be faithful. Brother Jimmy can't make you be faithful. All we can do is simply show you these wonderful truths and entrust these truths to you in the power of the Spirit. And that doesn't mean that we don't need to have pastors. That doesn't mean that we don't need to have leaders. What it does mean, listen, is that the work of God is our work. It's not just my work. I remember a quote that I've clung to by Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor said, Bear not a single care thyself. One is too much for thee. The work is mine and mine alone. Thy work to rest in me. You think about the call that God has given you. This, have you ever... Uh, my wife and I, we like to watch, uh, we used to, I don't know if it's still on television anymore, the, the show The Amazing Race. And on that show, uh, it was always this, this introduction. And this introduction, it took you through different vistas throughout the world and vantage points. And you got to see cultures and you, get to be in, you got to be experienced by all of these different cultures and influences. And it always gave me a thirst to fulfill the Great Commission. The world is ripe for harvest, Jesus said. But the workers are few. The laborers are few. What's Paul telling Timothy? Why is he talking to Timothy about all of these things? He's encouraging him to be faithful in his gospel ministry. And if he's going to be faithful in his gospel ministry, he has to understand what the gospel is. And so he's unpacking these truths of the gospel. And so this work that we have to do is too big for one person. It's a massive work. But that quote again comes to me and says, Bear not a single care thyself. One is too much for thee. The work is mine and mine alone, and thy work to rest in me. You see, you're called of God. I'm called of God. And God calls and He equips those 
that he calls. And he calls us because he desires to do so. Think about this. God could have used angels. He could have chosen to use earthquakes, wind, fire. But instead, he takes these dry bones of mine and he causes them to live. And he puts within me and he puts within you his spirit to empower us to do everything that He's called us to do. And He does the same for each of us who by faith trust in Him. And the most amazing aspect of life, listen, the most amazing aspect of life is finding God's call for you. But listen, it's not only finding God's call, because sometimes that can leave someone bewildered and and, timid. Oh my goodness, I have to find God's call for me. What if I miss it? What if I miss it? But listen, the most amazing aspect of life is finding God's call, but it's also not only finding God's call, but resting assured that God's desire for you is to fulfill His purpose. So what does that mean? It means if you ask God in faith, what is your will for me? He'll show you. Because you're not asking Him to do something that He's unwilling to do. His desire is for you. And I know some of you already, you may be saying, well, you know, God could never use me. Are you kidding me? Some of you are like Moses. and Wow, bah, 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 but God, I can't speak. I'm not a good speaker. I'm, how can I open my mouth? Every time I try to think about these, God could never use me. You say, you don't have any idea of my past. You don't know any of my influences or any of those things or what I've done. I just want you to consider the Apostle Paul. You see, Timothy, if we go to his second, second Timothy, then we find out that Paul was, uh, uh, or Timothy rather, was a little timid, a little afraid. Paul encourages Timothy here that God can use anybody. Look at verse 13 and 14. Look at what he says. Though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So you say, God could never use me. Number two, God overcomes sin with grace. He overcomes sin with grace. This is the beauty of the gospel. Not only does God desire you, but He has the means to fulfill that desire. Because He has something called grace. Romans 6 says, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Look at this. Look at the text. Paul uses three descriptors of himself. Those three descriptors are antithetical to the gospel. They're hostile to the gospel. They are the opposite way of the gospel. Look at them briefly. First, he says, I was a blasphemer. What did he do? He denied that Jesus is Lord. That's what a blasphemer is. One who denies that Jesus is Lord. 
Then he says he was a persecutor. Paul was a violent man. And he describes himself with violence. In other words, he puts himself, by using that word persecutor, he puts himself in the, in the most in the worst of all categories. And then my English Standard Version has this next phrase, an insolent opponent. Insolent opponent. What does that mean? Well, your translation may smooth that out a little better. It's an arrogant man. An arrogant man. And that word there is, is only used here in the, in the entire New Testament. And a theologian named Towner, he says this, Paul, he says that uh, this term flows from the last term, and it seeks to describe Paul's disposition. This term, according to Towner, describes the seething, listen to this, the seething attitude of insolent anger and boastful pride that often fills the void caused by fear and insecurity and produces the worst kind of behavior. So Paul says, I was the worst of the worst. But then notice the three terms. But then also notice that those three terms are overcome by God's action. Blasphemy, persecution, and pride are all met and overcome by God's grace, faith, and love. Excuse me. So where grace or where sin abounded, grace was there all the more. You see, Paul doesn't deserve grace, faith, and love. He doesn't. But according to what he would say to the Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. All to highlight this fact. It's by grace that we're saved. You see, grace overcomes sin. You know what the difference between Paul and these false teachers is? What's the difference? One word, grace. If not for the grace of God, Paul would still be lost in his sins. If not for that moment where here Paul is going back, he's always remembering his conversion. He never got over the gospel. That's what launched him. The gospel propels mission. The gospel propels mission. He never got over the fact that he was a rotten sinner before Jesus. He never got over the fact of this unsearchable truth of Christ coming into the world to save sinners. He never got over that. And if not for grace, if not for that moment when Jesus met him as a blasphemer, as a persecutor, as an insolent, as an insolent opponent. He 
And Jesus asked him a question. Or Paul asked Jesus a question. Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? And that's the right order. Because once you know who he is, and once you know what he's done, the only response that we could have is, what do you want me to do? When we understand the gospel, it fuels our mission. If not for grace, Paul would still be lost in his sins. If not for the sustaining power of God, he would be just like the false teachers. He would wander off into vain discussions and myths. If not for grace, see, listen, if not for grace, Paul would make shipwreck of his faith. Grace sets Paul apart from the false teachers. They miss the gospel. And because they miss the gospel, they miss grace. Now look at this. It says that Paul, in verse 13, right before 14, it says that he acted in ignorance. But all of Paul's ignorance was corrected when love broke through and faithfully or, or, or found Paul. But these false teachers, on the other hand, what's, what's the difference between them and Paul? They swerved. They swerved from the truth. And the consequences that they face is even more severe. You see, they're not acting in ignorance like Paul was. They're acting in willful disobedience. And they face a worse consequence than Paul. Because they had heard the truth and turned from the truth. But God is able to overcome any measure of sin with grace. And as Corey Tim Boom used to say, there is no pit that his love is not deeper still. But God resists the proud. Pride is antithetical to the gospel. The gospel broke Paul of his pride. The gospel, listen, had not yet broken the pride of the false teachers. And so what does Paul do? Look at verse 20. He hands them over to Satan. Look at this. Look at the first thing that he does. So that they may learn not to what? Blaspheme. How does Paul describe himself? The first descriptor. He says, I'm a blasphemer. You see... Him turning them over to Satan, you know what that tells us? Then even they are not without hope. And here's the point that I want to make to you. You may be here tonight and you may say, God can't use me. If God can use a man who describes himself as the worst of the worst, God can use you. I remember one of my favorite visits in Israel was to the place where Peter confessed Christ. And you know, it was an interesting thing that Peter, here he was, denied Jesus. But then God set him apart for the gospel ministry, restored him, renewed him, gave him an opportunity. What did Peter do? Peter denied Jesus, resulting in his crucifixion. You've not done any worse than Peter. 
And God used Peter to preach the first gospel proclamation after the resurrection. If God can use Paul, who calls himself the chief of sinners, he is able to use you. Number three. You see, God's mission, number three, becomes our mission. God's mission becomes our mission. The same grace that reached Paul is the same grace that reaches us. That same power that reached Paul is the same grace that reaches me. (laughs) And Jesus, look look at verse 16. Jesus was sent into the world, or verse 15, Jesus was sent into the world for one reason. Luke says it this way, to seek and save the lost ones. What did he tell his disciples in John? As the Father sent me, so send I you. We are sent with the gospel message of redemption. We are sent with the gospel message of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that's a good passage to pattern a ministry after. We are God's ambassadors as if God were making His appeal through us. We implore individuals to be reconciled to God. Listen, the gospel that has come to us is the gospel that we take to the world. I am so glad we're standing in a building that was built in the 1890s. People have been worshiping faithfully in these pews. I had, uh, I don't remember who it was. I think it was Mr. Sprayberry. He came in one time and he said, you know, I oftentimes think about how many, how many uh, of the old timers used to sit here. And he would go through and he would start naming some of the individuals that he remembers that used to sit in this pew when he was younger that are now gone. And that can be repeated in a building that's been here since the 1890s for generations. But you know what? Jesus didn't raise from the dead in the 1890s, did He? Someone carried the gospel faithfully from Jerusalem to the the shores that we are upon today. The gospel that has come to us is the gospel that we take to the world. But then notice this. Don't miss this. What's the gospel that we take to the world? Jesus was sent to save who? Sinners. Sinners. It was Malcolm Muggeridge or G.K. Chesterton, one of the two, that they said the uh, depravity of man is the most, you can look at that depravity and it's the most defensible, but it's also the most denied fact. We can look around and we can tell there's no argument that Mankind is depraved, but yet at the same time, it's the one that they deny the most. Jesus Christ into the world to save messed up people. He came into the world to save sinners. Jesus said that He was sent as a physician to the sick, not to those who are well. And God has given us this ministry of reconciliation, and He puts our lives on display to showcase His grace. Look at what Paul says in verse 16, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display, put us as trophies on display His perfect patience. 
as an example. Look at the assurance that Paul has here of those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. You see, God saves any and all who trust in Him. And the love of God expressed towards us in the sending of the Son, that love of God that is expressed towards us in the sending of the Son is what fuels our mission. Why do we go? Because He came. The gospel fuels mission. And when we grasp, listen, when we grasp that God saves because He desires to save, not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, but simply because He desires to do it. And when we learn of the matchless power of God's amazing grace that is greater than all of our sin, when we experience His love, when we experience His forgiveness, when we realize that the same God who saved us is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, then we're going to be eager to join with God on mission. What does Paul say? This statement is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And I wonder in my heart if I have fully accepted it. That's why I need the gospel every day. Because within me, I think that I have to earn the favor of God. When Jesus said from the cross, not it will be finished, not it might be finished, but it is finished. The story of Martin Luther is what made him consider the beautiful gospel truths in Romans. Luther was visiting Rome, and he was climbing up steps, repenting of his sins, and the promise was that if you get to the, when you get to the top of the, sin, the, the steps, after you've confessed your sins, you'll be forgiven. He said he felt heavier when he got to the top of the stairs than he did when he started. And then he began to read Romans. And then he got to Romans 6, and he learned that grace was greater than sin. And he learned that salvation, according to Scripture, is in Christ alone, by faith alone, to God's glory alone. And when we realize all of these truths, when we then accept the gospel, we will be eager to join with God on mission. Are we convinced of these truths? You see, nobody loves like Jesus. None other can save. He is right now seeking and saving lost ones. And look in verse 16. There's this guarantee that some are going to believe to those who were to believe. You see, right now Jesus is pleading all over the world with sinners to come home. Come home. Ye who are weary... Come home, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, O sinner, come home.
You see, fourthly and finally this evening, only the gospel brings total praise. Only the gospel brings total praise. Look at verse 17. I love Paul, and he does this often in his writings. He erupts in praise. He erupts in a doxology. It's like the truths that he has just been writing are heavy upon his heart. And so he has to pause and he has to say to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And in true Baptist preacher fashion, after he says amen, well, he's got four or five more chapters. (laughs) So it's not the final amen. It's just the amen in the middle. There's no other way to life other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So look at the way the passage began. Look at verse 12. What's it say? I thank Him. And then in verse 17, we have praise. And beloved, this is the Jesus way. Thanksgiving and praise thanksgiving and praise. You see, you know what we have when we say we have the gospel? We have the truth that brings the world the satisfaction that they long for. And the question that I simply ask tonight, will we be faithful to share it? And if we begin to share the gospel with ourselves every day, that you're accepted not because of what you can do, but because of what Jesus has done, then you'll be more apt to share it with somebody else. Because you're not giving them a list of rules to follow, you're giving them Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. His glory will last forever. His kingdom will endure. Those, who, those He seeks and save will always be secure. And those who reject His love could never have it better. The gospel is for every day. Hold firm to the gospel. And as you do, you will find in reality the gospel that you're holding on to is really holding you. Father in heaven, help us to believe, help us to take with full acceptance this message that has come to us. May it apply to our lives and may we take it, what has been given to us, live it, and then share it. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to Hearing is Believing. For more information or to contact us, please visit hearingisbelieving.org.